Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Hannah Sharif took over as the artistic director of the Repertory Theater of St. Louis in September. And since that time, the company has won raves for its productions of Angels in America and The Lifespan of a Fact. Its world premiere of a play called Feeding Beatrice at its smaller studio theater was extended due to audience demand. So Sharif's tenure is off to a great start. But her biggest test happens in two weeks. That's when the first repertory theater production directed by Sharif makes its debut. It's an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, and Hannah Sharif is here with us today to discuss it. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So, Hannah, you have a long history with this particular play. Tell us, um, you started your journey with Pride and Prejudice, uh, the, the play, back in Connecticut? I did. I did. So I commissioned this play in Hartford, Connecticut during my years at Hartford stage and did uh, several years of development on the play. And then I was really uh, fortunate to be able to direct the world premiere actually at my new home uh, in Baltimore uh, about five years ago. So um, this is an adaptation that was commissioned and developed with great love with the magnificent playwright Christopher Baker, who is as passionate about Jane Austen's work as I am. And then to be able to see that play take its full revolve and have a world premiere production, which was incredibly exciting. And it has been close to my heart for many, many years and felt like just the right um, entry point for my work as an artist in this community. Now, there have been many beloved cinematic adaptations yes. of this novel, but prior to this play that, that you um, helped commission, Back in the day, I'm not aware of any theatrical versions. Why do you think that is? Well, there are, there are others. There are about 19, actually, theatrical versions. There are hundreds of adaptations of Jane Austen's work. And I think part of it is the fact that Jane Austen has created these incredibly smart, charismatic, memorable women, heroines, who are... Uh, living and existing in a world that they're slightly out of step with. Mm. And I think that there's something about that connect and disconnect that resonates, that's timeless and resonates with many of us. Uh, I was first introduced to Jane Austen's work when I was 12. The first book I read was Sense and Sensibility, followed by Pride and Prejudice. And then I needed to read all of her canon. And I did find myself in these these women who had ideas that were uh, larger than what society told them they should have and these dreams and ambitions and challenges. And um, and I, I think it makes for great, uh, great drama, uh, sweeping romances. I, I am a huge fan of many of the cinematic versions. Um, Which is your favorite? My favorite, I, I'm aging myself or dating myself, but the 1995 version with Colin Firth, oh, I think, yes. is probably one of the best uh, adaptations, uh, cinematic adaptations. I recently saw The Pride and Prejudice Zombies, which was not quite my cup of tea, <laughs> but I think it's a testament to uh, the passion uh, in many different genres people have for Jane Austen's stories and these really memorable, familiar characters that have been able to span, you know, 200 years. So as you say, there are these other versions of this play out there, even yeah. though I had not been familiar with them. They're, they're clearly going on with other companies. What made you think, yeah, we actually need a different version. The world needs a 19th. <laughs> well, you know, I think that every playwright uh, has a very specific uh, entry point for a story. And Austin's novels are really quite dense. And so there are some adaptations that I found um, tried to take in too many of the subplots mm. and 
made for a less enjoyable patron experience. Uh, there's another very popular adaptation that's a little tongue in cheek mm. and and um, takes liberties uh, that are exciting and fun, but less less traditional. And I was really interested. And the playwright Christopher Baker, when he talked about his vision for the story, really interested in an adaptation that would be familiar to everyone that uh, the purists would appreciate and love, but also leaned in with the 21st century sensibility. So it is certainly a period piece, but I think that this, the language of it speaks to us in profoundly contemporary ways. And uh, we had a moment in rehearsal last week where we hit a scene and one of the actors went, this is amazing. He synthesized three chapters of the book and four pages in a way that is so clear, emotionally compelling, and propels the story forward. Wow, that and is hard to do. It's a really hard task, but that's part of why I wanted to work with this writer. And I thought that there was something really special that he could do and deliver us the, the essential story, Austin's story, uh, in a way that would resonate with everyone. And so in terms of those modern audiences, mm-hmm. um, what did you do or, or what are some ways that you had to rework the material to make sure that it just didn't feel fusty to somebody who's maybe not this devoted Austin fan and, and sort of understands the modernity of her characters? Well, I think that one of the things that's so great about Austin's work is that the characters themselves are so full of life mm-hmm. and energy and their inner monologue is again is timeless and so for us it was leaning into the inner monologue and really looking at uh, what was happening at the turn of the 19th century that created the challenges um, that birthed the the angst and the tension of the story and then finding what that mirrors in the 21st century. That's so interesting. Give us some idea. So what was happening at that period of time that, that you see the modern resonance with? Well, I think that it was, there was a there was a evolution of uh, industry. Uh, there was a political evolution happening at the time. Mm-hmm. And w- we found in particular with the women in Austin's stories that they were trapped in a society that had very strict rules around um, the possibilities of their lives, what progress would look like, mm-hmm. and how they would have independence and agency. Mm-hmm. And that there was a tension between women who were pushing against the walls of those of the world, but also forced to work within them. And I think that as we look in the 21st century at um, questions that uh, one would it uh, two decades ago would think we wouldn't be looking at as women in this contemporary society, I think that we're still finding ourselves pushing against the fold of wanting to have independence and agency and rules and structures of society that question that or that create tension for us. And so I think that there there are some really compelling, there's really compelling synergy between the challenges um, that the characters in Jane Austen's world were facing and we, what we faced. They're not the same, but they resonate in a deeply um, impactful and familiar way. And I heard that you also have uh, somewhat of a modern soundtrack. Is that the case with this production? (laughs) It is true. Now, this is where the purists may (laughs) say, wait a minute, that's that's not... um, you know, I am a huge fan of contemporary music. I love the idea, especially in this period, of blending. Um, uh, Jane Austen has a wonderful songbook collection that uh, many purist Austenites are familiar with. And and so I like the idea, and, and I'm working with this brilliant um, 
uh, sound design and composition team. So all of the music in the show has been composed for this production. Oh, wow. Which is amazing. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking about um, how we root the music in Jane Austen's songbooks, but then push in a really contemporary way. And so... Um, there are some very contemporary bass lines and there's a little bit of electronica at times that comes in and uh, and it's a lot of fun. And I think the sound certainly does feel like uh, a, a 21st century sound. But anyone who's a true Austinite will hear the uh, melodies and uh, the melodic lines of um, 19th century this, this uh, sounds kind of like what Sofia Coppola was doing with yeah. Marie Antoinette. Is that sort of the idea? I would definitely say that I'm a huge fan of that movie. And I think that uh, that type of synergy between the old world and new world is really compelling. And I think that that's also part of how we can make these stories contemporary and new. And so, yes, if you've, if you've seen that movie, then you won't be surprised when you hear the energy of the sound. So that might be a warning for some of our listeners who are going to come in expecting everything to be completely completely traditional. It sounds like this is going to be so true to the text, but that we're also going to notice how it resonates in a modern way. I think when you walk into the theater, you'll be blown away by the beauty of the world. The set is extraordinary, and it's also created by uh, uh, St. Louisan. Scott Bradley is our set designer. We've worked together for many years, and this is actually will be his first show back in St. Louis since he left in high school many, many years ago. Uh, But brilliant, brilliant set designer. It's got all of the glam and the sparkle that one would expect from a 19th century romance. The costumes are gorgeous. Uh, so if you're coming to be swept away into the 19th century world of the ton, you're definitely going to uh, find yourself satisfied with Pride and Prejudice. And then you'll get to lean into a little 21st century sound. So the music is new for this production. It yes. sounds like the set is, is completely new for this production. Has the text changed at all since the version that you mounted in Baltimore? Uh, yes, this is actually their there are some some Christmas surprises in our production that were not part of the original production. Uh, when I knew that we were going to be playing in this slot over the holidays, I um, called my dear friend, the playwright, and said, wouldn't it be great if we could have the last ball happen at Christmas and perhaps we could have a little treat for our audiences? And he was totally game to revisit. So uh, in fact, our audiences here in St. Louis will be the first audience to see this version of the script. Wow, that is exciting. Yes. Now, you've had a few Elizabeth Bennets from Connecticut to Baltimore, now to St. Yes. Louis. What does your St. Louis actress bring to this role? I, I think that Katie uh, uh, Kleiger, who is brilliant and beautiful and nuanced, um, has such a compelling energy. She is able to bring forward the sense of Elizabeth Bennet's wit, mm-hmm. this sense of being... Um, well-liked, but also the smartest woman in the room, Uh, someone who's not met her match. I think that she's able to deliver um, the, uh, I I know we've used the term tension, but also the sense of um, dissatisfaction with the state of the world that she's in while still blooming, Hmm. while still blossoming, while still sharing um, her joy. Um, And I think that it's a really hard thing to be able to carry uh, the complexity of the tension and the nuance and the joy. And I think that she she does it with great aplomb. Now, bigger picture, um, this is your first year here at The Rep. And you had said in some other interviews that you wanted to spend this, your first year in St. Louis, as a year of listening. Yes. So how's that going so far? 
You know, it's been an exciting start. We've had um, several productions that have really been well-received. They really have. I mean, these are raves. They've been great. And also what we've been able to do is partner and collaborate with different organizations on each of the productions. So as we've created these partnerships, it's been a great opportunity for me to get to know other organizations in the city, to get to know who their constituents are. So with Angels in America, we partner with Urban Chestnut in the Grove. That's a also- great partner. Get a brewery in there. Yes. I mean, what says St. Louis? <laughs> uh, like the breweries. But we also partnered with um, renowned local artist Kubabi Bayak. Uh, and commissioned him to do a 200-square-foot mural to commemorate Angels in America, which is on the Manchester-facing side of Urban Chestnut. And uh, it's a beautiful mural. Um, We've got Instagram is filled with people stopping and taking their pictures with their own angel wings in front of it. And that's one that will um, be a lasting commemoration of that partnership. Um, And another major... um, a collaboration we did during Angels in America is we partnered with Dr. Uh, Madi Davis, who is a clinician uh, in Wash U's um, Infectious Disease Center. And she did a presentation called U Equals U, looking at um, the reality of HIV and AIDS in the 21st century. And it was mm-hmm. a powerful and impactful conversation. And I would say 50% of the people who came out for that conversation were patrons who'd seen the show. Mm-hmm. And success for me, uh, was that 50% of the people who came out for that conversation had not seen the show and had never been in our doors before. They came out because there was an important community conversation happening, and we were creating the space and access for that conversation to happen. And that we had this moment where the art on stage, the theme of the, arts on, the art on stage, was actually elevated to be uh, create a meaningful space of healing and sharing for the larger community. And I believe fundamentally in terms of our responsibility and access um, that that it is it is an important part of the work that we do at the Rep, and it certainly will be something you'll see more of. So that's, you know, you're getting these people through the door, which is, that's the first challenge. Yeah. Second challenge, then, how do you get them to come back for them to say, yeah, Pride and Prejudice, this is going to speak to me, too. Um, do you see that as directly translating in that way? Uh, not necessarily directly translating in that way. I think that it's about an invitation to the party. You know, when, when, when people ask me, well, how do we expand audiences? And I say, well, the first step to expanding an audience is actually having a meaningful relationship with the communities that you want to bring in. So if you want young people to come to the theater, then you have to form a meaningful relationship. You've got to be able to connect and create work that's relevant to them. You have to show an interest and you have to create an invitation, not just to one party, but to all of our parties. And so I think that it's a long game in that way um, and that the more... Uh, we listen and hear and allow that information to help inform the way we move forward, the greater relevancy we're going to have within our community. And I think that while uh, the shows that we put on stage and driving an audience to them is incredibly important, I'm in this business because I think that art can transform lives and that ultimately this is about the elevation and the introduction um, and the embracing of our own humanity and the humanity of others. And sometimes that happens because you sit in the seat and watch a play, and sometimes it happens because you meet us at an education activity in a park, and sometimes it happens because you come into an important community conversation being hosted. But the end result of all of those opportunities is a sense for you to see yourself 
and to see the humanity in the person next to you. And that's the work. That's the spiritual work. That's the community work that I'm interested in. And that's the reason that I'm an artist. And so I think that we have a great opportunity with the platform that the rep has to really be a change agent in this community and to be a space for difficult discourse and healing. So the New York Times reported that women have been named to 41% of the 85 artistic director jobs at big theaters yes, like the rest. Yes, isn't that exciting? Yeah, that's since 2015. <laughs> and people of color are actually 26% of that same cohort. Um, so do you feel like you're almost part of a national movement here where you're sort of changing things up and almost taking over these previously stodgy institutions? <laughs> I would say stodgy is your word, not my word. And that is absolutely true. (laughs) And that was not directed at the rep in particular, but in terms of uh, bigger theaters. Yes, I would offer that we are witnessing a transformation of leadership in our field um, that heretofore was unprecedented. In the 70 years that there's been the American Regional Theater, we've never seen a transition of leadership like this. And a lot of it is really about a retirement bubble. Many of the folks, like my predecessor, who has admirably served this community for 34 years, was retiring. And so um, there are a number of artists in my generation who have been working within the regional theater movement for 15, 20, 22 years and um, are excited to be able to take what we've learned um, about the evolution of the theater and to really vision forward a new a new way forward. And part of it is because there are, there are legitimately systemic issues that we face as a field, uh, problems that have to be solved. And so I'm an active conversation with most of those new leaders. Uh, we have... You got, are you guys all on a group text? Uh, we've got or? group text. We've got email chains. We are at we you know get together for lunches at national conferences and and share ideas. And I do think that that might be part of if I were going to if I were going to look back at um, uh, what I've witnessed uh, as a artistic leader in the last twenty years as someone who supported as a associate artistic director for many years at multiple institutions. That one of the differences I would say with um, previous leadership and this new generation is that we are all really openly, actively working together to solve problems, not just for the field, but in our own institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that part of it is is really that the ability to be able to lean on each other is a gift that was given to us um, in the sense that the first women to come into these positions uh, did not have as many peers to lean on and to look for for support. Mm-hmm. And they were really breaking that first round of glass ceilings for us. And so we were able to learn by watching, learn from working with uh, them and their male uh, colleagues. And I think that one of the things we realized is that um, it isn't weak to be able to say, I'm facing these big challenges. How are you facing these challenges? And for us to share information that it actually will make all of us stronger and our institutions, whether the the um, uh, the storms of the political and financial and all, all, all of the things that every major theater is facing and, and most um, cultural institutions. And so there is a sense of us uh, working together and leveraging our combined brilliance to s- solve these issues. I love that phrase, combined brilliance. Yeah. That Yeah. What do you think is, is going to be the bigger challenge going forward for artistic directors like yourself to attract these new audiences that you're really earnestly seeking out or to not alienate the older audiences? 
responses that are still there and, and might be a little averse to mixing things up too much? Um, you know, I think in truth, the real issue that we're all facing, that that question gets to the heart of, is really what's the financial model to support nonprofit theater in the 21st century? Hmm. And uh, it's a bigger question than can we keep our patron base and build a new audience? The answer is we don't have an option. We've got to be able to retain our core audience because they've been underwriting the American theater for many, many years. And we also have to be able to bring in a new audience. Otherwise, the theaters will die because they won't be sustainable because there won't be an audience. And right now, I would say across the country, what we see is a missing generation of audience. Um, if I were to talk to most of my patrons, I think that they've been coming to the theater for 30 or 40 years, which means that they started coming to the theater you know, in their late 30s, early 40s. And if you ask many of them if their children who are in that age group come to the theater, most of them will say no. Hmm. So and that Gen X component is, 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 the, is the right now generation. Is right now missing from the regional theater. They're finding their way into theater, mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily the largest theaters in the country. And then you, you see actually this younger generation of early 20s who are starting to peek their heads back into the regional theater. And so I think that we've got to find a way to attract the missing generation and we've got to find a way uh, to make our homes relevant and important and a vital part of the conversation for our communities for this younger generation. And um, I think it's a legacy project, right? Uh, in terms of not wanting to alienate our traditional audience, I think that the audiences that have been here are passionate about our theaters. And I um, would speak to all of our patrons and say that I'm in this because I believe in building on the legacy of those who came before me. And I want their help in doing that here in St. Louis. I want to know how we can all work together to make sure that the theater that you have loved for 20, 30, and 40 years has another 40, 50, 60 years to make great work, classics and new work, and to serve audiences. And how do we get this next generation to be as passionate about the work as you are? Hannah Sharif, Artistic Director of the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been great. And Pride and Prejudice opens in the first week of December. Yes. yes. Please come out. I don't know if this is appropriate to say to a director, but break a leg. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.